These just six verses that we're going to be considering this evening, the Lord used very much in my life to really settle me in so many ways. To settle me in my own salvation of God's free grace. To settle fears and doubts of assurance or lack of. To know that gospel preaching is never in vain. And to know that there is a God in heaven who is over all things. Well, I trust that if you're in need of help in any of those kinds of areas, that these six verses will likewise be of great help to you. The majesty of God's sovereign choosing. Paul's been talking about the theme of election. He's used examples from the Old Testament of how God chose one brother but not the other brother, even when on one occasion those brothers were twin boys. All of God decided long before those boys were even born. But we recognize and we acknowledge that many of these things that Paul teaches through this ninth chapter uh, do prompt certain questions and do often Uh, meet with certain objections which we find rising up in our own hearts. Uh, I've known them, many of you have known them, some of you perhaps are still struggling through them and I'm sure these were things which um, the Apostle Paul himself uh, from his uh, background of self-righteousness as a Pharisee and as a Jew of that kind of background having to realize and understand that a Gentile believer is every bit as much a saved Christian accepted before God as any converted Jew is. Surely he spent quite some time um, pondering and meditating over these great truths which Christ illuminated to him. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever whomever I will have compassion. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. And we've seen that to argue that this is somehow unfair or unjust is to look at God's salvation of sinners through the wrong type of lens. We should be staggered that God would choose to save anyone at all. And his grace and mercy, that he would have such grace and such mercy to save people from their sins, that should be the thing which overwhelms you as we consider these great truths. If you really want to understand God's electing of sinners for salvation, you've got to forget the category of fairness 
and justice. Because all that any of us deserve is condemnation. No, you have to move into the category of mercy and focus on the mercy that God has shown to sinners through the Lord Jesus Christ. If your salvation was a matter of fairness or justice, none of us would be saved. Because in God's eyes, what is fair and just for sinners is the punishment and condemnation that their own sinfulness brings upon them. No, the gospel is all of mercy. The gospel is all of grace. But, someone will ask, if God's sovereign choosing ultimately decides, how can there be blame for us? If my not being elect and not being saved is God's choice, how then can he punish me for my sin? Some may ask. And they do seem to be quite reasonable questions to raise, don't they? If God decides not to choose these to be saved, how can he therefore still hold them responsible for their sins and condemn them? Well, they're the kinds of questions which lie behind what Paul says at verse 19. As he anticipates this response, you will say then, why does he still find fault? If all of us can only do that which God has already decided, how can he find fault with sinners at all? Well, before we turn to some of the specifics of those six verses, let me just remind you of something else first. Number one, remember, they are your willful sins and you are without excuse. Because as we make our way through this letter, you mustn't forget what Paul has already laid down and what Paul has already made clear, and particularly at the beginning of this letter. And if you want to understand the nature of sin, if you want to understand the heart of sinners, you simply have to read from verse 18 of chapter 1 to verse 18 of chapter 3. And there you will find the most wonderful, comprehensive summary of the sinfulness of sinners and of their guilt before a holy God. Let me remind you of a few of the things that Paul said to us there. Speaking of those who are in their sin, which in our natural state as we are born is every single one of us, what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, 
so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, everyone knows that God is. They might deny it with their mouth. The scripture assures us everyone knows in their heart that God is. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, everyone has a conscience that convicts them of their sin. They know the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. They not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. There is none righteous, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seek after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they've practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul's opening statements are that men and women are totally responsible for their own sinfulness before God. There's no better example of this than the current debate around conversion therapy. The world is saying this, how dare you accuse these people of living a sinful lifestyle? How dare you do anything which encourages them or persuades them to stop or to change? What is the world saying? It's saying this. We love our sins. We celebrate our sins. We promote sinfulness and unrighteousness, says the world. We defend our right to be allowed the liberty to live a sinful life without interference or rebuke. That is what they're saying out there. They love their sin. You will not find any of those people standing outside this building protesting because God has not chosen to save them. It will never happen. They protest for the liberty to indulge their sins. Don't they? They do. But they're only like that because... They're not God's elect. Not true. Because even though if you're a Christian, 
You are God's elect. Before God saved you, you were like that too. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul writing to the Corinthian church. Not fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Had you not been washed, had you not been sanctified, had you not been justified, you'd have continued in your sins for the rest of your life, just like everybody else. They're not lost in their sins just because God has not chosen them for salvation. Even those of us who were chosen for salvation, we were once lost in our sins. It is only through God's mercy and grace that we've been saved from it. The extent of God's sovereignty is about to be spread out before you in the Scriptures. But that does not mean that you are not responsible before him for your sins. The extent of God's sovereignty does not mean that he would be wrong to hold you accountable for your sins. And Paul has laid that out already before us in the opening chapters of his letter, that each one of us one day must give an account to God for the things that we've said, the things that we've thought, the things that we've done. And in our sinfulness, we do all of those things gladly, openly. It's the nature of a sinful heart to be that way. All of us are without excuse before God. And all those who've rejected Christ and on that judgment day stand before him unconverted, unsaved in their sins, they will be without excuse that day. But people do struggle with this question. If God is sovereign over all of these things, how can he still hold us to account for our sins? Well, Paul uses a very simple illustration which he draws from the Old Testament to help us understand. So Paul says this, first of all, in verses 20 and 21. It's the potter, not the clay, who determines what will be made. It's the potter, not the clay, who determines what will be made. Now, the first thing we see Paul do is bring a stinging rebuke against anyone who would dare to question God. Verse 20, who are you to reply against God? Now, if it was the case that we've simply got the wrong end of the stick with what Paul is trying to teach here, and that by asking the kind of question that is being asked in verse 19, 
and in asking some of the other questions that Paul has also been answering, if it's just the fact that we've misunderstood him, now is the perfect opportunity and the obvious time for Paul to turn around and say, no, no, that's not what I meant. Let me rephrase that. But of course he doesn't. He's saying, no, you, you've actually heard me absolutely right. And let me explain now, based on what I've said being the truth. Paul has said exactly what he meant to say, and he has meant every word that he has said. And look at his opening response, verse 20. Who are you to reply against God? Who are you to answer back to God? What pride and arrogance there has to be in the human heart that we would assume to know better than God does on this subject, on any subject. As I've said in, in a previous sermon in this series, if you decide within yourself that this is not the kind of God that you want to believe in, this God that Paul is opening up before us in these scriptures, this God who is revealing himself to us through the mouth of his apostle. If, if you're saying within yourself, this is not the kind of God that I believe in, that can only mean that within your own heart, you have erected an idol of your own design. This is the God that I want to serve. This is the kind of God that I want to worship. This is the kind of God that I want to talk about. This is the kind of God that I want to be able to share with people. But you've just created an idol which allows you to define and describe who this God is, what God is like, what this God may or may not do. And Paul is aghast at such a thought. You've just crossed the line if you think that God is accountable to you. And so he pictures all of mankind, every man, woman, boy, girl that's ever been born, ever will be born in this whole world, as one single lump of clay. We are indeed just the dust of the earth. And God, as the potter, fashions from one lump of clay two different kinds of vessel. Vessels for honour, vessels for dishonour. The vessels for honour, being those at the end which are described as vessels of mercy. The vessels of dishonour, being those which are described in verse 22, as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So the vessels that are mentioned in verse 22 are not different to the vessels mentioned in verse 21. They're one and the same. Two different vessels from one single lump of clay. And it is an Old Testament image. You can find this image of the potter and the clay, in, uh, particularly in Isaiah and Jeremiah. They use uh, this illustration 
uh, to teach things to the Lord's people there, of the clay and the hands of God as the potter. And so imagine yourself in a potter's studio, and on one side of the studio, on the shelves, uh, we see that the potter there has made the finest dinner services that would adorn the finest tables for any meal. And on the other side, there's just row upon row of toilet bowls. That is actually the kind of distinction that Paul is trying to draw here. There is no way you would ever confuse the two. There is no way you would ever mistake the use of the one for the use of the other, is there? They are so distinct, so different, so apart from each other, so opposed to one another. Vessels for honour, vessels for dishonour. That's the kind of thinking that Paul is using in the language that he has here. And this is what God is doing. It's a stark distinction which is being set before us. And what role in all of this does the clay have? None whatsoever. The clay just has to yield itself to the will and the hands of the potter. The potter's in control of everything. And Paul is using this picture with relation to election and our choosing and of God's mercy and grace being brought into this world. So just going back to some of the things that we've seen a little earlier in the chapter, from the same lump of clay, he made Ishmael and he made Isaac. From the same lump of clay, he made Esau and he made Jacob. But in both cases, only one of those two boys was the child of promise, down which the promise would continue to come. And Paul's thinking is, would we place God on trial and bring accusations against him because of these truths? Would you dare to think that your own sense of reason is superior to the wisdom and the purposes of God? And the interesting thing in these verses is that Paul really makes no attempt to explain any of this any further than to teach the reality of these truths, to give this simple illustration and to state, and it is so. Because which of us really can fathom the mind of God? And God does not need any man or woman to try and justify him for what he has decided to do. You and I are not so high and mighty before God that he owes it to us to explain to him what he is like and what he should do. You cannot put God before the tribunal of you and ask him to prove to you that what he chooses to do is, after all, acceptable. Well now, thank you, God. Now that you've offered such a comprehensive explanation of what you were thinking and how you came to that decision, I find that I can agree with you and you're free to carry on. 
Would anyone here dare to take that stand or that attitude of heart before the living God of heaven? Who do you think you are to think of God that way, Paul is saying? God, does he have power over the clay? And the word means supreme power, complete authority. Does he or doesn't he? Does he not have authority to fashion each lump as he chooses? Now, says Paul, God does have such authority. It is a simple fact. And he doesn't really try to explain it. He doesn't try to justify that claim. He simply states the truth of the matter as it is. And the issue, you see, is your willingness and mine to acknowledge and accept God's authority and to humble yourself under it. Because these things are so. And this is the God we know and love who gave Christ for us. And so Paul continues in verses 22-24 talking about vessels for destruction and vessels for mercy. They serve to magnify God's glory. It's all about God's glory. Now this morning we thought briefly about Judas Iscariot who is just one of many examples in the Bible of people who did that which is evil. But their evil doing was all part of God's eternal purpose and which ultimately showed forth God's glory. Jesus came to die for sinners. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to be hung on a tree to die in order that he could fulfill Old Testament prophecy. Jesus had to be placed into the hands of Roman soldiers somehow, somewhere. But God had it all worked out and Judas was the someone who, who sorted it. Unless those events took place, the glory of the gospel would not exist. And so even someone like Judas was appointed by God to bring glory to God. God makes some vessels for sin and dishonor, and he leaves them in their sin, verse 22. Often they will proliferate in their sin. And God has a reason for this. His purposes are in this. And remember the first point. Sinners are not held at gunpoint against their will in sinfulness. Sinners are more than content to keep themselves there. And, says Paul, for that they were made. So we have the sovereignty of God over them, yet they retain responsibility and accountability before him for their own sinfulness. The Bible recognizes that there is something of a tension between those two truths, but it never tries to go any further to satisfy our curiosity. It simply states these truths. 
Well, what of these vessels made for dishonour? Well, Paul says there, if you look at verse 22, what if God... Now, of course, Paul knows exactly this is actually the case. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, he endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In their rebellion and in their wickedness, God will yet demonstrate great long-suffering and patience with them. In their final destruction, which they will receive as they are judged for all the deeds that they have done, for all the thoughts that they have thought, for all the words that they have spoken. God's righteous power and justice will be on display for everyone to see. And even in his condemnation of sinners, God will be glorified as people see his justice and his power on, on show. The wicked have not got away with it. They cannot escape his judgment. There used to be that saying, didn't there, about the Canadian Mounties, they always get their man. God will get every man, every woman, every boy, every girl who's ever rejected Christ, who's ever abandoned themselves to their sinfulness. How much more will God display his glory as his justice and power are displayed? And by this, God will magnify his own name to his own glory. What if God has chosen to leave people in the sins, in their sins, that he might exalt his own name in this way. That is his purpose. And the fact of the matter is, sinners are happy to comply. On the other side of the coin, verse 23, what if God has chosen some vessels for honour? What if there are those about whom Paul can say, and such were some of you? What if there are those whose lives will be miraculously transformed and for whom that was always God's purpose? What if there are those lumps of clay whom God set aside so that in them and through them he could display the wonders of his grace and mercy. That men would declare, oh, the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of God's love, that he would save a sinner like me. That through these lumps of clay, the greatness of his grace and mercy would be seen in a way in which they would never otherwise be known. And if you're a Christian, you are that lump of clay. As Christian believers, we are those lumps of clay, verse 24, both Jew and Gentile. 
Who can know the mind of God? Which of us would dare to pretend to be his equal on these things? Which man or woman dares to stand and challenge the potter? And note what it says also at the end of verse 23. Prepared beforehand. Prepared beforehand. No last minute thing this. No knee jerk reaction this from God. Prepared beforehand. Just as he says of Esau and Jacob. Even before they were born. Even before they'd thought any thought or spoken any word, or done any deed. What a wonder it is that God could take such a lump of clay as you or me and fashion it by his own hands to be a vessel of honour and a vessel of mercy. That's what Paul wants to drive home to each one of us. And so you and I, if you're a Christian, surely we are to give ourselves to be those vessels of honour which God, before time began, has made us to be. That through us, those who've known his grace and mercy might declare forth the glories of God and all that Christ has done. This is why God has chosen as he has chosen on that last day, what glory it will be to God as all of those vessels for honour, all of those vessels of mercy are all gathered together before his throne of grace in worship and praise of the Lamb once slain. Well, will Paul say at the end of chapter 11, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. What can compare to this? How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. I want a God for whom it is no other way than this. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has become his counsellor? Who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And that should be the heart cry of every believer as we read through these great truths. That's what Paul wants to be, the heart cry of every Christian as we see that we are the objects of God's mercy and grace, and were it not for his choosing, and were it not for his purpose, we would still be lost and dead in our sins and facing eternal torment. And our hearts can only rise in praise and adoration and worship. I cannot tell why he whom angels worship should set his love upon the sons of men. But praise God, he has. I cannot tell 
how he will win the nations, how he will claim his earthly heritage. I cannot tell how all the lands shall worship when at his bidding every storm is stilled. But this I know, all flesh shall see his glory and he shall reap the harvest he has sown and some glad day his sun shall shine in splendor when he, the Savior, Savior of the world, is known. We can but humble ourselves in praise and worship at the infinite wisdom and goodness and grace and mercy of God.